first journey part eight of narrative of the operations and recent discoveries in egypt and nubia by giovanni belzoni this librivox recording is in the public domain first journey part eight during the time of this excavation i scrutinized the ruins of karnak and perceived a great number of spots that deserve digging i saw the famous altar with the six deities mentioned in the great french work and the colossal arm both of which i formed the project of removing even at that period fortunately on this side of the water the difficulty of obtaining people to work was less than i had found it on the other the cacheff was ready to do all he could for me and everything went on very smoothly the only impediment here was that the fellows of karnak would insist upon coming to work in greater numbers than those of luxor for they said the others had no right to come to labour on these grounds and sometimes this dispute ended in blows these people were quite the reverse of those in gournon who having become opulent by the trade in antiquities and tricking travellers were not so anxious to gain thirty paras a day during the same excavation i turned up a fine standing colossus without a head part of which projects above the ground and which had not been seen by anybody for my part i think it one of the most finished pieces of egyptian sculpture i ever saw it would be too tedious to the reader to mention all the particulars that occurred during my researches unfortunately i was without money to proceed and had to go to esne to borrow some from a greek i happened to know in that place who would supply me with any sum but as i expected a remittance from the consul i only took what was necessary to transport the lion-headed statues from karnak to luxor ready for embarkation on my return to karnak i found that an order had come from the cacheff of goose to the kainakan of luxor not to let me take anything away this being contrary to the order i had from mahatmad ali bashaw i set off for goose immediately and finding on my arrival that the cacheff was gone to glena i directed my course to that place as the current was very strong we went on pretty fast about midnight we saw two kangias coming up i inquired what party it was and was told it was khalil bey my good friend on his return from cairo i was pleased at this circumstance as i meant to complain against the conduct of the cacheff but on approaching the kangias i found that the cacheff was there also khalil bey was well pleased to see me return from nubia and was anxious to inquire how they received me in that country i told him that they obeyed his firman and that i had done all i wished to do in respect to the temple at izambul but not being able to finish my undertaking that year i should return the next he desired to know whether the two brothers mahatmad and osien kacheff were friends again a question to which i was unable to reply but i told him the country was perfectly quiet at that time i returned to goose with him and the next morning took an opportunity to inquire of the cacheff the reason for his sending the order to the sheikh not to let the english take away anything that was found he said he knew nothing about it although i had seen the order myself however he was ready to give me any order i pleased no doubt this was in consequence of the bey being there otherwise i should not have found him so easy to deal with khalil bey was an albanian who had married the sister of mahatmad ali bashaw of egypt and held the command of the provinces in upper egypt from esne to aswan and for a turk was much attached to european travellers he was continually inquiring concerning things he did not know and had a degree of sound judgment a quality very scarce among turks but for all this he was a complete slave to superstition and to the belief of magical powers on our arrival at goose he took his seat in the garden of the cacheff under an arbour of grapevines shaded all round by plantain trees which formed a very pleasing and cool recess a large mat was spread on the ground and on this a fine carpet and cushions as usual the cacheff was seated at his right and a turkish sheikh on his left two hajis sat by the cacheff and i was requested to take my seat near the holy man next to me was a turkish merchant and after him a fool or santon quite naked 
all the rest of the followers soldiers and attendants stood in a crescent before us pipes were brought in for the bey the kachef the holy man and myself coffee was served all round to the persons who were seated and the conversation turned on the harvest that was to be the next season according to the inundation of that year it was then the beginning of november they were wondering at the great quantity of corn the bashaw was sending continually to be embarked at alexandria particularly at this season some supposed that the europeans were about to make war against the port and that previous to the declaration they made provision of corn as without a supply from egypt they would be unable to feed their troops others observed if this were the case mohammed ali would not send them corn till he knew for what purpose it was wanted one said he thought the corn was sent into russia as he had heard that the french had set all that country on fire and he then inquired of me whether it were not so i told him that i did not know what the french did in that country but i knew that the corn was sent into europe in consequence of a scarcity in the harvest that year through the whole of that quarter of the globe the bay agreed it must be so and asked whether it would be the same the next season i told him i hoped not for in general after a scarcity came a plenty yes says the bey but the bashaw will sell the corn at a high price for three or four years to come till your granaries are filled again but pray added he smiling have you a scarcity of stones also in europe that you come here to fetch them away i answered that we had plenty of stones but we thought those of egypt were of a better sort ho ho replied he it is because you find some gold in them perhaps thank god this is the first instance of my hearing the word perhaps employed for they are so positive on this point that they never make any doubt of it the dinner was brought in a large tray it consisted as usual of very poor rice soup which after eating three spoonfuls was taken away and a dish of roast mutton brought forward no sooner had we begun to eat of that than a man came in with his hand full of large green peppercorns and let them fall on the tray which being of metal sounded like a drumhead after him came another with half a dozen onions peeled which he let fall in like manner and they rolled about the tray like billiard balls and a third followed with peeled garlic and so forth after eating the mutton a dish of very small fried fish was served up they were about half a dozen and we were eight of us so that we could not eat too much of this it was soon removed and a kind of tart was produced but neither the bey the kachef the sheikh nor myself could eat a single bit of it the fruit consisted of a watermelon which having demolished they finished their repast by washing their beards it was rather too mean to set before the bey as i have seen the kachef take a better for himself at other times but it is a general system among these people both turks and arabs always to make themselves appear poor in the presence of their superiors as the kachef had furnished me with an order for the kamaikan of luxor to let me carry away what stones i pleased i took my leave of the bey and set off on my arrival at karnak the work to be done consisted only in transporting the six sphinxes and the white statue to luxor for embarkation a distance of nearly a mile without a road in many parts the water had left a soft ground where the statues had to pass and as there was no mechanical power to assist the arabs had enough to do to carry them to the place of destination with this all my labour at karnak ended and while thus waiting for the boat from aswan and the cash from cairo i paid a daily visit to the tombs in gournon these sepulchres are excavated in all directions in the rocks but generally with the entrance facing the east as the chain of these mountains runs from north to south they are intermixed of all sizes and some of them have porticos hewn out of the rocks before the entrance but generally they are within the outer door which is mostly adorned with well-finished figures and hieroglyphics and generally the watchful fox is represented at each side of the inner door leading to the grotto 
some of them are very extensive and run down in various directions something like winding stairs having on each side at regular distances of a few paces small chambers to deposit the mummies some have deep shafts or wells with excavations on each side of the shaft to receive the mummies and at the bottom of the wells are passages leading to smaller apartments with endless winding recesses it was here that i had first leisure to examine and find the means of ascertaining where the entrances were to many of the tombs which had been hidden for centuries from the eye of mankind the extensive ruins of medinet abu are in my humble opinion best worthy the attentive scrutiny of a traveller of any on the west of thebes the descriptions given by messrs hamilton and denon are sufficient to convey a correct idea of these edifices which contain propylaeon temples and dwelling-places it seems that here was the residence of some of the sovereigns of egypt for in no other edifices of ancient egypt have i seen the remains of habitations as they are in this place there are two separate temples of which the first that meets the viewer going from the memphomium is of a less ancient date than the other on the west side of the portal are stones with hieroglyphics upside down evidently belonging to a former temple the pronaos is surrounded by a portico of pilasters at each side of which are two chambers one on the right of the entrance has been used as a christian chapel the cella contains various apartments quite dark in one of which on the right side is a monolite temple of red granite without hieroglyphics it is wider than the door and must have been placed there before the cello was erected the hieroglyphics and figures of this edifice differ from those of the other temple in proportion as the two temples differ from each other on the north side of this little temple was a small lake or rather a tank for water which is now filled up with earth and rubbish and there must have been statues all around it as i found part of one and fragments of others in an excavation i made in that place perhaps it might have been used for the same purposes as the small lakes near the temple of karnak which may be supposed to have been the public baths destined for the religious visitors to the temple on the south of these ruins is a building something like a square tower with a large gateway which i opened and went through it is nearly in a line with the gates leading into the great temple above the gateway is a chamber with two square windows looking over it at each side there are also two doors opposite each other on the sides above this chamber was another with two windows like those below but the forepart of the upper chamber is fallen in there are recesses at the sides of the windows no doubt to place the shutters no hieroglyphics are to be seen within this building though on the outside it is everywhere covered with them the two lateral walls in front of this place form an avenue to the gateway further on about two hundred yards to the west stands the great temple there is a large propylaeon with the entrance into the inner yard the walls are covered with hieroglyphics deeply cut the gateway which is also adorned in like manner leads into a large yard with a wall opposite to the propylaeon and a gateway into another yard at each side of this yard is a portico on the right are seven pilasters with colossal figures before them and on the left eight columns with capitals in the forms of the lotus both of these porticos are also adorned with hieroglyphics deeply cut the next yard has a gallery or area all around it of pilasters and columns the walls are beautifully embellished with battles men on chariots captives and slaves together with which are distinctly visible procession offerings initiations and sacrifices so well described by mr denon the excavations of these works shows that they are of a very ancient period the hieroglyphics are uncommonly deep more so than any i have seen in other buildings in egypt in some parts the figures retain their colours pretty well particularly in the ceiling on the capitals of the columns this edifice has been used as a christian church 
and the rude columns employed in a more modern building within this yard show the wonderful difference between the arts of the two ages further on through the last gate was the entrance to the pronaos and cella but now these are buried under the earth and several saracenic buildings have been raised on it the exterior wall of these ruins is filled with historical subjects such as land and sea fights lion hunting processions of captives and various national emblems further to the south of the town is a small temple which now serves for the shepherds to keep their cattle in at night the whole town in my opinion appears to have been rebuilt twice or three times successively on the ruins of the former it was at this period that i began to make some researches in the valley adjacent to that of beban el malouk i had seen all the tombs of the kings as i did not go there however with my intention of making researches my curiosity must have been greater than that of many who had been there before as i went into every little recess of these valleys it was in the western valley that one of the french savans discovered a large tomb which he found open but was quite unknown before his time i went to visit this tomb and found it very extensive and in pretty good preservation my curiosity did not end here i went further on in the valley and in one of the most remote spots saw a heap of stones which appeared to me detached from the mass the vacancies between these stones were filled up with sand and rubbish i happened to have a stick with me and on thrusting it into the holes among the stones i found it penetrate very deep i returned immediately to gournon and procured a few men to open these places unfortunately both mrs belzoni and myself had been much afflicted for some time with the ophthalmia which was so severe on me at this time that i could scarcely see anything before me i took the men into the same valley the next morning but in consequence of my eyes being so bad it was some time before i could find the spot again on removing a few stones we perceived that the sand ran inwards and in fact we were so near the entrance that in less than two hours all the stones were taken away i had caused some candles to be brought and i went in followed by the arabs i cannot boast of having made a great discovery in this tomb though it contains several curious and singular painted figures on the walls and from its extent and part of a sarcophagus remaining in the centre of a large chamber have reason to suppose that it was the burial place of some person of distinction the tomb consists of three chambers two corridors and a staircase but the remote situation in which it was found renders it remarkable and i declare that i owe this discovery merely to fortune and not to any premeditated research as i went into these mountains only to examine the various places where the water descends from the desert into the valleys after rain it is singular to observe that though rain falls very seldom sometimes not more than once or twice a year yet such is the effect of the climate and the sun on the spots where the water passes that they are as strongly marked as if it were continually running over them and much harder than the rest of the masses the higher part of the mountain on the west of thebes extends in wide plains which rise gradually towards the west and when rain falls upon them the water takes its course towards the nile descending into the valleys of egypt there are very few places in these mountains where water gathers in such quantities as in the valley of biban el malouk and its adjoining branch on the west side for some time the water forms a small torrent that carries everything before it mr salt superintended the making of a road from the tombs of the kings to the nile for the purpose of transporting a large sarcophagus and one of these falls of water from the desert destroyed the whole road for the present however i shall leave this valley as i shall have to speak of it in another part of this volume on my second journey to thebes and nubia the time having elapsed in which i expected to receive letters from cairo i was rather uneasy and resolved to return to kenna on my return at this place i found the courier had just entered it 
he brought me letters from mr salt with an order for money on the seraph or banker of kenna i quickly finished my business there and speeded to luxor where i was pleased to find the boat returned from aswan to take the colossal bust on board but i was soon informed by the proprietor that it was loaded with dates and that he was come himself from esne to return the money i had paid as earnest for they could not think of taking that large stone into the boat as it would crush it to pieces all my persuasions were useless and though i had a written agreement in my hands they signified to me that it was of no use they never would take the stone on board i had much to say to them as may be imagined in such a case for i was so circumstanced that if the present opportunity of transporting the bust were lost the water in the nile would have become much too low and the conveyance could not have been effected till the next season at the same time i was informed by my janizary whom i sent to aswan in the same boat with the two agents of mr d that it was owing to them the owner would not take the stone on board for they told him he would lose his boat and never receive any recompense for it and that the agreement i made with them was good for nothing when in cairo in fact these gentlemen had so much the minds of the crew that they were resolved not to perform their contract the twelve stones i had left in the island of philo and which were to have been conveyed in the same boat in like manner could not be embarked as the rice told me there was no small boats to take them down the cataract and i afterwards learned that this also was owing to the same influence the unfortunate history of these stones will not be read without exciting sentiments of detestation towards the parties concerned they had been mutilated and rendered useless how and by whom i shall mention hereafter my situation with regard to the boat was far from pleasant and i had no resources but to take the owner to esne and lay the case before khalil bey who by this time must have arrived at that place but even then i did not know how far he would interfere in compelling these people to keep to their agreement as he had himself observed that he thought the stone would break the boat this however was the only step i could take fortune sometimes brings troubles on mankind merely that they may taste the fickleness of her nature and uncertainty of the favours she condescends to bestow on them my vexation was great thinking all my efforts and exertion in bringing the bust to the nile were to no purpose and that very probably it would never reach england as the underhand machinations against it were so powerful at that moment however a soldier arrived from ament acquainting me that the kachef was returned from cairo and he gave me at the same time a letter from him with a present which he had sent of two small bottles of anchovies and two of olives strange as it may appear it will be seen that the effects of a few salted little fish contributed the greatest share towards the removal of the colossus which i had so much at heart and which in all probability but for them would have not been in the british museum to this day the letter contained a very gratifying invitation to a feast to be given by the kachef and the present was in token of a friendly disposition towards me i was not a little surprised at this change but i soon discovered the reason the soldier acquainted me that the kachef was in a terrible rage with a certain correspondent and friend of his a frank who for some time had raised his expectation of having some valuable presents sent him but instead of this he received at last only a few bottles of insignificant fish which may be had in plenty from the nile and a few olives not worth a pipe of tobacco i took care that this should not be told to the owner of the boats and as it was arranged that we should go to esne for the decision of the affair i took them on board the little boat which i had hired and we set off for that place leaving the large one at luxor knowing in what humour the kachef must be in from his disappointment i thought to strike while his mind was hot on our arrival before ermetz i begged the two owners of the boat to wait a little as i had business with the kachef of the village it was already an hour after sunset and the village is about a mile from the nile 
i took my interpreter and janizary with me and set off alertly to my anchovy and olive man i found him seated on a mat in the middle of a field a stick fastened in the ground with a lantern attached to it and all his attendants standing before him on seeing me he made a great parade of compliments i suppose because he thought that as he was disappointed of presents from one quarter he could make the best market he could by trying the other pipes and coffee were brought as usual and an offer was made me to send as many men as i liked to have to work that i might take away the great head early the next morning and the cover of the sarcophagus or anything else i pleased had i requested him to let me take the two large colossi of thebes tommy and dummy as the arabs call them he would have had no objection to my putting them on board my little boat that night i then introduced the affair of the boat produced the written agreement i had drawn up at esne with the two owners and mentioned the money i had paid which amounted to half the sum of what they were eventually to receive he immediately said i need not go to esne for the decision the affair belonging to himself as the boat was to be loaded on a bank in his province the two gentlemen from esne were sent for and when they heard that the cause was to be tried at ermitz they were thunderstruck they considered the boat lost to them though i repeatedly told them that i would be answerable for any damage that might be occurred in the embarkation or landing but it was all to no purpose the catchiff however insisted that they should keep their agreement with me and still more to accommodate matters as they were at a loss what to do with the dates offered them his kanja which would contain as much as was necessary to be taken out of the boat as i did not wish to unload it entirely meanwhile as he did not like to appear too openly decided in my favour he proposed that in the morning the owners should be summoned and the case brought to a fair hearing they then retired to pass the night on board in continuing his civilities and protestations of friendship the cacheff came to an explanation of his former conduct and in particular of the letter he sent to his brother respecting the sarcophagus it was written he said before he saw mr d but now that he found how things were i might have the sarcophagus or anything else that he would guard it for me as long as i desired that no one should have it and added a thousand other obliging things so extraordinary a change led me to suppose that mr salt had made him some handsome present while in cairo but i was mistaken for a little after asking him what he thought of the consul to my surprise he told me that he did not see him the consul invited him he said to his house and prepared a dinner for him but that on the day he was to go news arrived of the death of tusun bashaw the eldest son of mahatmad ali and he was ordered to come away immediately which put an end to the pleasure of seeing the consul for he loved him like his right eye the story was equally well invented and well told and i saw plainly he was so ashamed of his late conduct towards me that he could not face the consul he caused dinner to be brought and carried his civilities to such a height that i began to be alarmed suspecting him of some diabolical trick on my thanking him for the bottles of anchovies and olives he said they were the whole of the french consuls present to him while he was in cairo i took the opportunity of observing that it would have been well for him if while he was there he had called on the english consul to which he replied that he had been told the consul had a fine brace of pistols for him but that unfortunately it was out of his power to go to see him i answered i had no doubt he would make him some present when the stone should reach cairo on which he immediately rejoined that there was nothing he would not do either for him or for me but i must not think that what he did was with any view of interest i said i was quite persuaded of the contrary and should trouble him for an order to be given to the people at gournou to come to work he protested he would comply with all i wished but added with a smile what will you do if the trial should go against you 
i told him i should proceed to esne where the agreement was made in the presence of the sharif and show that i was in the right he laughed put his hand on my shoulder and said you may sleep in peace for to-morrow i will myself see the boat unloaded of every date that is in it and you may reload it at your pleasure i answered that i had no doubt he would do what was just and taking leave i returned on board the little boat for the night thirteenth in the morning i found him in his chamber of audience surrounded by several arabs sheikhs of the village he made me sit down on his right hand and coffee and pipes were brought for no judgment could be pronounced without these luxuries he had explained the cause to the gentlemen of the jury who said without hearing the other side that what he intended to do was perfectly equitable and they would have said the same whether i had been right or wrong for these juries are not so deficient in politeness as to contradict the judge the other parties came and he received them politely but with a frown on his brow from which i have no doubt they sufficiently augured their fate however not to keep them in suspense they were soon plainly told that the bark except only eighty adepts an indulgence to which i had agreed must be unloaded and he saw no other way of settling the business he then referred to the gentlemen of the jury to know whether they had anything to say to my astonishment they answered that as the other parties made no defence they of course acknowledged themselves wrong and having nothing more to do they all instantly rose and walked off the defendants then partook of what was before them but i believe never made a worse breakfast in their lives they began to talk about where to find a boat though they were obliged of necessity to hire one of the kachef being fully aware of his design which was to get the best part of the money for himself the contract was soon made and they paid him two-thirds of what they were to receive from me which indeed they were glad to do lest he should scrutinize the business and finding the freight to be double what was mentioned in the bill of lading they should thus lose still more i then took leave of the kachef that i might travel to gournou to settle what business was to be done there he had given me a tiscary for the soldier to furnish me with what i wanted gave orders to the fellas to do all i desired and take out the sarcophagus and on going on board i found that he had sent me two sheep a jar of cheese and some bread we set off immediately one of the sheep died in the evening the other next day and the cheese was full of vermin we arrived at luxor in the afternoon and a few hours after went to gournou and saw the sheikh el belad of that place i sent my janizary to the soldier and it was concerted that the fellows i wanted should be ready for me in the morning early on the fourteenth i went again to gournou to begin the work and was not a little surprised when i saw no fellows assembled by one whom i met i was told that they were afraid being ordered not to work for the english i applied as before to the soldier who sent a man to collect the fellows but it was too late they were all dispersed accordingly i contented myself this day with only having the apparatus necessary to embark the head conveyed over from luxor the kachef's boat from ermance arrived and that at luxor came also to gournou to unload fifteenth the next day we collected though not without trouble a hundred and thirty men and i begun to make a causeway by which to convey the head down to the riverside for the bank was more than fifteen feet above the level of the water which had retired at least a hundred feet from it next morning a soldier came from the kachef to say that i was not to pay the fellows anything as they were ordered to work for me for nothing as long as i required and that he made me a present of their labour i thanked him but desired the soldier to tell him at the same time that it was not my custom to have the labour of men for nothing nor would the consul of england accept of such a present i this day finished the causeway down the bank and had the head brought to the edge of the slope ready to be embarked on the seventeenth of november i succeeded in my attempt and the head of the younger memnon was actually embarked 
i cannot help observing that it was no easy undertaking to put a piece of granite of such bulk and weight on board a boat that if it received the weight on one side would immediately upset and what is more this was to be done without the smallest help of any mechanical contrivance even a single tackle and only with four poles and ropes as the water was about eighteen feet below the bank where the head was to descend the causeway i had made gradually sloped to the edge of the water close to the boat and with the four poles i formed a bridge from the bank into the centre of the boat so that when the weight bore on the bridge it pressed only on the centre of the boat the bridge rested partly on the causeway partly on the side of the boat and partly on the centre of it on the opposite side of the boat i put some mats well filled with straw i necessarily stationed a few arabs in the boat and some at each side with a lever of palm-wood as i had nothing else in the middle of the bridge i put a sack filled with sand that if the colossus should run too fast into the boat it might be stopped in the ground behind the colossus i had a piece of a palm-tree firmly planted round which a rope was twisted and then fastened to its ear to let it descend gradually i set a lever at work on each side and at the same time that the men in the boat were pulling others were slackening the ropes and others shifting the rollers as the colossus advanced thus it descended gradually from the mainland to the causeway when it sunk a good deal as the causeway was made of fresh earth this however i did not regret as it was better it should be so than that it should run too fast towards the water for i had to consider that if this piece of antiquity should fall into the nile my return to europe would not be very welcome particularly to the antiquaries though i have reason to believe that some among the great body of its scientific men would rather have seen it sunk in the nile than where it is now deposited however it went smoothly on board the arabs who were unanimously of opinion that it would go to the bottom of the river or crush the boat were all attention as if anxious to know the result as well as to learn how the operation was to be performed and when the owner of the boat who considered it as consigned to perdition witnessed my success and saw the huge piece of stone as he called it safely on board he came and squeezed me heartily by the hand thank heaven i exclaimed and i had reason to be thankful for i will leave it to the judgment of any engineer whether it would not be easier to embark a mass ten times larger on board a competent vessel where all sorts of mechanical powers could be procured instead of being destitute as i was of everything necessary the boat then crossed the water to luxor for what was to be taken in there which was done in three days and on the twenty first we left thebes on our return to cairo i had just finished my business when i was again so affected with ophthalmia that for twelve days i kept myself shut up in the cabin of the boat so that i can give no account of this voyage till we reach siut i could then just peep at the light but it gave me great pain whenever i attempted to open my eyes at siut i went to see the Dafardor bay to return him thanks for the firman he had given me when i ascended the nile i found him in his tent in the middle of a field of high clover which had nearly reached its growth and his horses were all out at grass he was pleased to hear that i had succeeded in my undertaking and requested to be remembered to the english consul to whom he sent a letter by me next morning we set off for cairo and reached it on the fifteenth of december having been twenty-four days from thebes thus i had been five months and a half in continual activity and exertion but i must not let pass the unjust observation made by the ever voracious count de forban who asserted that i employed six months solely in taking the colossal bust on board the boat it is true i was absent five months and a half from cairo and six months had elapsed before i reached alexandria but this time was not all devoted to the removal of the bust 
as i employed only eighteen days in that operation and but a single day in embarking it the greater part of the time was spent in more arduous researches and the various pieces of antiquity which i brought down the nile will bear infallible testimony to my labour at cairo i found that the consul was gone to alexandria but had left with mr beechey his secretary instructions and letters for me he requested that everything might be landed and lodged in the consulate except the bust i could not conceive the reason of this distinction as i thought that all the articles i collected were to go to the british museum however i made no inquiry into the business and everything was deposited as desired the first hour of my arrival i had the pleasure of seeing my good and much lamented friend Bookhart, whose death has been a great loss to me he was the most candid disinterested and sincere being i have ever met with totally free from that invidious and selfish disposition which is so often to be found in travellers who wish to be alone in one quarter of the world to relate their story agreeably to the suggestions of their own imagination to the people of another but burckhardt had none of that littleness of mind he was a true explorer and a hardy one without pride or the ambition to be thought more than he was he made no parade of his knowledge as his works plainly events having prepared for my departure for alexandria we left bulak on the third of january eighteen seventeen and arrived in rashid or rosetta on the tenth there i had to land the colossus and embark it again on board a jem but as i had now some tackle of which i was destitute before and proper people to work i found it quite an easy operation besides i took care to land it in a situation that was advantageous for embarking it again having finished i set off on board the same journey with the bust and was fortunate enough to reach alexandria two hours after sunset of the same day which was the fourth after our arrival in rosetta that very day above two hundred jerns came out of the nile some of which had been waiting for an opportunity of passing the bar above eighty days mrs belzoni went by land accompanied by the irish lad and arrived the next day i will not mention the kind reception of the consul-general and the under-consul mr lee i was fortunate enough to become acquainted with a gentleman mr briggs who received me into his house in the most hospitable manner and was as much concerned for the success of my affairs as it was possible to be for he felt the pleasure of a true englishman in seeing one of the most finished monuments of egyptian art ready to be embarked for his native country the next and final operation with respect to the bust on my part was to land it and have it conveyed in safety to the bashaw's magazine there to await its embarkation for england i had some difficulty in landing it as the pier was much higher than the jern and the motion of the sea did not permit me to erect any bridge i was so fortunate as to procure the crew of a british transport which was there at the time and with their help with proper tackle and a hundred men besides it was landed safely having finished my operations and whatever was necessary respecting the head i proposed to the consul to make another trip into upper egypt and nubia to open the temple at Istanbul nothing could be more pleasing to me than to find that my proposal was accepted as i thought i might have an opportunity of accomplishing the wishes i had formed which to a certain extent were with particular views though as the consul has proved no interested motives governed my mind the only stipulation i made was that if i were successful he would give me an official letter of introduction to the society of antiquaries when i should return to england with which he promised to comply thinking however i might be indulging hopes that would not be realized he cautioned me against any expectations from that quarter i told him i was not rich but as i had no other view than to serve the nation at large i intended to make certain proposals to the members of that honourable society 
on this he again promised me the letter requested and in a few days we all set off for cairo there the worthy burckhardt would insist that i should receive a present half of which he obtained from the consul as an acknowledgment for my success with regard to the colossus of the general expenses attending which he paid a moiety it was at this period that the captain cabilla had ventured into the well of the first pyramid of gaza his enterprise was hazardous and bold and nothing but an enthusiasm for discovery could induce a man to take such a step the consul with mr briggs mr beechey and myself went to see the operations that were going on captain cabilla's circumstances were much better than mine but he had no superfluous wealth at command to continue what he had begun which required a supply beyond his means mr briggs was the first who generously offered to furnish money for this purpose and after a consultation with mr salt they agreed to support the work to any extent that might be required this gentleman not only encouraged the undertaking at the pyramid but has exerted his influence with mohammed ali for the general advantage of the commerce of europe as i shall have occasion to mention hereafter the enterprise of captain cabilla is worthy the attention of every one interested in antiquities as he has solved a question by which the learned world has been puzzled for many centuries the famous well which has given rise to so much conjecture turns out to be a communication with a lower passage leading into an inferior chamber discovered and opened by himself he first descended the well to the depth of thirty-eight feet where his progress was stopped by four large stones three of these being removed there was space enough for a man to pass through but the fourth he could not stir though he had the help of mr kabitch a young man in the employment of mr bajo who bore a share of the expenses with the captain twenty-one feet below this place they found a grotto seventeen feet long and four high and seven feet below this a platform from which the well descended two hundred feet lower the captain went down and at the bottom found earth and sand but from the hollow sound under his feet he judged that the passage must communicate with some other apartment below he then set some arabs at work to remove the sand but the heat was so great and the candles so incapable of burning for want of oxygen that they were compelled to desist the captain then turned his researches to another quarter and began to enlarge the entrance into the first passage of the pyramid for this operation he was well rewarded for by it he found that the passage continued downward and having employed several men and taken out a great deal of earth and rubbish at last after a long and arduous toil he came in contact with the bottom of the well where he found the baskets and rope which had been left there the same day that this occurred was that on which we had agreed to visit the pyramids and i had the pleasure to be an eye-witness of the arduous task of captain cabilla proceeding in his laborious researches he found that the passage led into a chamber cut out of the rock under the centre of the pyramid captain c made several researches round the pyramid also but none exceeded his toil in uncovering the front of the great sphinx he found a small temple between the two paws and a large tablet of granite on its breast the tablet is adorned with several figures and hieroglyphics and two representations of sphinxes are sculptured on it before the entrance into the small temple was a lion placed as if to guard the approach farther on from this front of the sphinx is a staircase of thirty-two steps at the bottom of which is an altar with a greek inscription of the time of the ptolemies at each side of the altar was a sphinx of calcareous stone much mutilated from the base of the temple to the summit of the head is sixty-five feet the legs of the sphinx are fifty-seven feet long from the breast to the extremity of the paws which are eight feet high forty-five feet from the first altar he found another with an inscription alluding to the emperor septimus severus 
and near to the first step was a stone with another greek inscription alluding to antoninus notwithstanding his own occupation above the sphinx captain cabilia employed other people to carry out other researches he opened some of the mausoleums which were choked up with sand and found several small chambers with hieroglyphics and figures some of them pretty well executed and in good preservation in one of the pits he found some mummies in their linen envelopes and various fragments of egyptian antiquity he also opened some of the smaller pyramids and from the suggestion of mr briggs to follow a certain direction he succeeded in finding the entrance into one of them but it appears that it was so decayed in the interior he could advance only a few feet in it no doubt this led into some chamber or apartment containing perhaps a sarcophagus and so forth i was then merely a spectator of the works of captain cabilia the consul mr salt proposed to me to enter into the researches in concert with the captain but as i thought it would not be right to attempt to share the credit of one who had already exerted himself to the utmost of his power i declined besides it would have been a poor victory on my part to enter into the field after the battle had been fought and conquest gained by another i contented myself therefore with hoping for a better opportunity to try my skill independent of any one having got all things ready for my departure the consul proposed that i should take mr beechey with me up the nile nothing could suit me better than to have a companion in a young gentleman with the prospect of whose society from what i had seen of him i had much reason to be pleased i was fully satisfied that after having weaned himself from these indulgences to which he was accustomed he would make a good traveller though it is not easy to one who is not accustomed to an arduous life to pass on a sudden from the accommodation of a comfortable house to that of a rough uneasy boat and much less to a life that is so irregular however mr beechey soon accustomed himself to the change and in a few months became quite indifferent to the many inconveniences he had to undergo as to mrs belzoni i left her at cairo in the family of mr cochini the british chancellor and when all was ready we took leave of the consul and mr burckhardt alas i little thought it was the last time i should see my friend but so it was ordained End of the First Journey End of the First Journey, Part 8